Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm Chris, and today I'm happy to welcome Kirsten back to the podcast, along with her baby boy, Joel. This episode is shorter than we usually do, but we wanted to get the word out for a very important panel discussion organized by the Black Trowel Collective on unionizing in North American archaeology. It's streaming live this Thursday, June 24th from 1 to 3 p.m. Pacific time and will be recorded to be watched later. We also offer some of our thoughts on labor conditions in cultural resources archaeology. We encourage our listeners to check out the Black Trial Collective. Their uh, website is in the show notes, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, donate to their mutual aid fund and their micro-grant fund. They're able to support um, a lot of great programs and offer opportunities to um, researchers who otherwise wouldn't have um, the kinds of opportunities to participate in archaeology. Um, and uh, they're just a, a really great group. So yeah, check them out. We're really excited to cover um, their panel on today's episode. We also want to thank our own supporters, um, our Patreon supporters. Um Guthrie Straw, Martin Sherman, Eric Reed, Rye Christ, Paul Zimmerman, Kelly Eldridge, uh, Joseph Marhi, Megan McGinnis, Julia Joblinski, Jonathan Sims, Kevin Ricks, and Brent Murphy. Um, a lot of you all have been longtime supporters of the um, Go to Go Hall podcast on Patreon. Um, we're also appreciative of everybody uh, who have been um, supporters in the past. Um, you guys have, you know, helped us keep going, um, helped us, uh, support others and, you know, get the word out. Um, so yeah, if you want to check out, uh, the go dig a hole, Patreon, it's P A T R E O N.com forward slash go dig a hole. You've got some questions. Go dig a hole. You're feeling stressed, man. Go dig a hole. I'm a hungry baby, so just as a heads up. Yeah. How's he doing? Good. Getting big, of course. Um, otherwise, being generally curious about the world. So. There he is. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Joel. Hi, Joel. How have you been doing? I've been doing good. Finally, feel like I'm starting to find a little bit of a rhythm. Um, some of it is as he's got more of a schedule um, in and out and just pretty good sitting and playing on his own for chunks at a time so and i'm also not having to work on my thesis so all these things considered um, nice at least i haven't gotten any uh of the edits or anything back so we'll see how that goes or when when i get that back um but and what that looks like so Currently, um, I think I did almost five hours today for regular actual work. So it feels kind of nice to be like, I have time to work. <laughs> <laughs> so otherwise yeah. it's been like a day a week, maybe two. Um, so it's, it feels good. So, yeah, well, that sounds great. Yeah, how have you been? How are the puppers? Puppers are good. Um, Artie is laying right next to me. Oh. And Baloo's laying downstairs where it's a little cooler. Yeah. It's toasty today. Yeah, the forecast um, looks like it's going to be hot for a while. Yeah. My teenager is very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like my enthusiasm for heat has waned as I've gotten older. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm less excited about it. I've always preferred being physically active in the cool weather. Yeah. 
if it's not cold enough to snow and it's not hot enough that like I feel inclined to have to wear sunscreen um, and I'm not super sweaty, like it's perfect. So the Northwest is the greatest place to do <laughs> because yeah. Even if it's raining, if I'm in rain, I'm super comfortable and happy with. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about the Pacific Northwest. I'm like, man, the Pacific Northwest in like October, paradise feels yeah, great. It does. Like I can go running and not feel like I'm dying. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. I saw, um, I was reading about the rainfall totals. Um, in Oregon and in the months of April and May, the average rainfall is 10 inches mm -hmm. uh, throughout Oregon. And no, I'm sorry for Portland okay. specific to Portland. Um, and we got barely two inches. Ooh. So it's um, ah! kind of uh -oh. scary. Um, and the, most of the States in an extreme drought, and the area near Klamath Falls is in an exceptional drought. Yeah. 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 I'm not scary. forward to this summer. And I really feel for the field workers out there this year. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think as far as safety planning will have to be really, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people do this in their field planning anyway, but I think especially after last year, it'll be really important for this year to start planning for escape routes. Like, yeah. um, you know, what, what are our directions that we can go to get out um, of wherever you are in um, the field? I know for like rain and flooding, um, that's often, uh, or something that I've kept an eye on for some projects and um, such, but yeah, it'll be, I'm interested to see how, how this goes and hopefully, you know, everyone will be able to be safe um, throughout the summer and into the fall. Yeah. <laughs> that um, so yeah, that, that'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm hoping that this, there'll be a little bit of moisture I don't know I'm kind of back and forth because I feel like when there's a lot of rain in the spring and it's really hot in the summer you get a lot of grass fire which tends to start mm. some of those larger forest fires if it's a not very well maintained forest which that's a good point after the Trump years and the Forest Service being so underfunded all of the not just the Forest Service but the all of the land managing agencies being so underfunded the um land maintenance management has been neglected. And so with that, you get a lot of fuels. Yeah. It seemed like there was a, there were much fewer, um, like fuels reduction projects happening than well, there were in years past. Um, maybe that was just like my point of observation and I could be wrong about that, but, um, yeah, it, it seems like uh, the management of federal lands has, uh, like, there's there's a lot to catch up on from the Trump years. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, at one point hearing um, from the Forest Service uh, in 2019 that in Oregon, or I don't remember if it was Oregon specific or nationwide, but they were only at 40% capacity for for the employees that they needed to run all the programs that they were supposed to run. Man, so, that makes me curious where um, those, those people went, like, what are they doing now for work if their jobs got reduced? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, it's hard to say, and that's where, you know, the, the, Federal and state governments are, have always been large employers. Um, and it's not just archaeologists, but also firefighters and mm -hmm. uh, land management employees that do um, 
some of the slash and burn uh, type stuff, uh, regular park rangers, or even just like, um, you know, like fish and wildlife wardens style stuff. Like it's, um, there's a lot that's being neglected. And some of it is, I think a lot of the general public doesn't realize how much actually goes into managing public lands. Yeah. Uh, and how many people in theory <laughs> under uh, better circumstances that it would um, employ even just not even increasing programs, just if we, if all the programs were sufficiently funded. Um, you know, it's a good solid job and wage for a lot of people and it doesn't, no one gets rich off of it. So yeah. Except the public, the public gets rich off of experiences. In That's the right. Picture. <laughs> the big picture. Huh. Rich in experience, isn't that right, Joel? <laughs> All the parks got to maintain those parks. Yep. Yeah. I gotta say, Kirsten, I'm impressed. You know, you're like I don't, I can't maintain a clear train of thought if I'm doing like anything, like even just drinking a glass of water. Um, I'm, I'm super impressed that you're, uh, you know, keeping Joel happy and, uh, you know, bouncing him around and, and keeping, a, you know, discussing these topics that I'm like, I'm over here distracted watching Joel bouncing around. I'm like, <laughs> he's just a happy camper. He is. And that's what makes it possible. He's yeah. a, like easy kid. So at least for now, We'll see once he starts toddling around how that changes. Yeah. He's not quite crawling yet, but trying and getting very frustrated that he can't. <laughs> <laughs> so he prefers being upright and held. Yeah. So, at least for now. Yeah. Well, it's good to, um, you know, be back podcasting together. It's been a little bit. Um, yeah. We has. had... Um, like two months ago, I think was the last time we put a new episode out and it was, um, Joel was still like baby, baby, baby. Yeah. And, um, uh, Tia and Tipton and I met in Lone Fir Cemetery and, uh, you know, for a socially distanced bike ride. And most of that was just spent like reminiscing over, uh, our experiences during the pandemic and, you know, kind of like coming back out of it and like the perspectives that have changed since then. Um, and it's funny, even in two months, like now, you know, uh, effectively everything is opening back up again and, um, you know, a large number of people are vaccinated. Um, and so, you know, like people are able to be more, um, I'm really hesitant to say like back to normal because I don't I don't think normal's ever gonna come back. No. Um, but it's more active, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know the right way to say that, but people trying to get back to normal or finding a new semblance of what normal should be. Yeah. Because even if it's things get back on track, um in anything that we might call normal, I mean the world is forever changed at least everyone who's currently alive yeah, uh, and probably for generations to come just to, I mean, this is so unique of a situation um, and not just the pandemic bit, but the fact that it was such a global universal response. I mean, this is the first big pandemic since globalization. I mean, the closest thing might be, of course, what everyone keeps conjuring up in discussions about pandemics is the 1918 flu. Mm. Um, but that was still, you know, you didn't have as much international travel. Things didn't move quite as quickly. Um, but it was still, you know, close. Um, and there's other comparisons that people have done. Of course, there's a lot of uh, historians and podcasters and archaeologists who've talked about things like the Black Plague. Um, and it's fun to see how people have 
you know, looked at parallels or seeing what you can see from the archeological record around this um, or even the written historic record. And nothing quite comes close. Um, you know, the bubonic, bubonic plague was something that hit Europe and the Middle East. Um, and probably, I'm gonna guess Northern Africa, but to, I don't know how well that's documented. It's not something that you hear about, but because it popped up in the Mediterranean, I'm gonna gander that through trade networks, it, it did end up <laughs> in the direction. Um, yeah. But I could be totally wrong. Uh, and I mean, even that travels quickly and without the understanding of how disease diseases worked, and that was also before, obviously, um, antibiotics, that's a bacteria, so it's easily treatable today. Um, in fact, uh, Nate tested someone for bubonic plague just last week. <laughs> so it's Man. something that I've seen, heard of on, on the east side. Uh, some of the rodents out there carry it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. That reminds me. I had seen signs. Um, I camped at Yosemite years and years ago and I remembered seeing signs that, um, the, uh, what was it? The gophers around there carried bubonic plague. Yeah. That sounds right. I was like, that's kind of grim. <laughs> Don't feed the gophers. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's been a while, two months. Um, shortly after that podcast, I fell off my bike and broke my hand and then uh, recovered from that and got attacked on my bike. And, um, you know, then it just like wasn't a fun time to try and like talk or do yeah. stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, back on my bike, back healed. And, you know, like you've, you've got a million things going on and, uh, you know, Tia and, and Tipton also, you know, they're in the field a lot more than you and I are. So, um, it's, it's a lot more difficult for them to join. Um, sure. but, you know, that's kind of, the, that's the go dig a hole experience that I yeah. think our listeners now are used to is like, uh, we do it when we can and, you know, we're archaeologists, this is the archaeological experience is, uh, you, you gotta be flexible with us. <laughs> So goes the life of an archaeologist. Everything's right. fun yeah. your pants. So, yeah, I figured this one could be a short one. And um, mostly just really wanted to get the word out for a panel that the Black Trowel Collective is organizing. Uh, the panel is called Unionizing American, sorry, Unionizing North American Archaeology. And it is an online panel that is on June 24th from 1 to 3 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, it's uh, organized by the Black Trial Collective. You can find them on social media. Uh, the links will be in the show notes on whatever podcast platform y'all are listening to. Um, and the moderator is uh, Vina Dubal, who is a professor of law um, at the University of California, Hastings. Um, and then some of the panelists include Sam Easy, who is an archaeology sector representative with Leona, uh, which is um, a field tech union, or probably more than just field techs. It, I think it's like a, a contract archaeology union uh, based in Canada. So that'll be uh, some interesting perspectives to hear. Um, and then Brian West is the chairman of United Archaeological Field Technicians. Um, and then Dave Schatz, who's a principal investigator and senior archaeologist, and then um, Jay Doe, an anonymous grad student organizer and CRM archaeologist. Um, so they will be um, discussing topics around organizing labor and kind of conditions of employment in commercial archaeology in North America. Um, Captioning will be provided. Uh, the webinar will be recorded for future viewing. Um, instructions for retaining anonymity will be sent with the webinar link. And the webinar link will be um, also in the show notes below. And I believe the recording will be available on YouTube after it's uh, been recorded. Um, but 
I'm really interested in this panel. I, I think it's a long time coming. And I think, um, like a lot of industries are facing very similar things with, um, kind of a job insecurity, especially coming out of the pandemic. You know, we saw like in Portland, it was something like 60% of our restaurants and bars closed yeah. for good. Um, and you know, now everywhere across the country, you keep seeing signs of, um, you know, like fast food and retail workers are just quitting in droves because the working conditions and the pay are so bad that, um, they're just taking anything that's better. And so, you know, like fast food joints are closing, uh, overnight. Um, so I, I think it's similar. It's not a, an exact parallel, but, um, you know, in contract archaeology, we face job insecurity as well and bad wages, lack of benefits, stuff like that. Well, that's definitely the heart of it um, when it comes to the quote unquote, you know, labor shortage that uh, the country is currently experiencing. And some of it, I mean, there's a lot of talk of like, well, it's because people just want to stay on unemployment and I'm like people don't want to stay on unemployment however if your unemployment pay is better than the wage that you're getting I mean in all honesty most people don't want to have nothing to do all day um you know work for a lot of people gives them purpose or joy especially coming out of the pandemic you have it work as an opportunity to talk to other adults to see people and to socialize which we've all I think you know learned that, that we are social animals and that's something that we really need to, to actually have as parts of our lives yeah um, and I don't think that the majority of people are wanting to not work just to not work I think a lot of people want to go back to work it's just untenable and also realizing that it's not it doesn't have to be you know I mean yeah the money's there there just has to be the political will to put the money where it's needed yes I mean great examples of that of course are large large corporations um, that we cannot name them all um, that have very large profit margins and enough, you know, if they pay their employees fair wages, you know, that they would not go under. Yeah. And benefits. And some of that is like, you know, keeping people fully employed. You know, I know one of the, the loops that some corporations uh, took uh, in recent, like the last couple decades has been keeping people underemployed, keeping people at like under 35 hours so they don't have to give them benefits. Yeah. People are working two jobs and, you know, quality of life tanks. And that's just not, it's just not good for society. It's not good for individuals. I mean, you know, people get cranky and, you know, don't trust other people. People don't have a chance to set down roots in the place that they want to. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that goes into the downsides of not having this. And I think unionizing in archaeology has been something people have talked about for a really long time. Um, and any, like, there is not a single field technician that I have met and talked to they could exist out there um, that don't like the idea. Yeah. Increased like job security or benefits. And it's not even like a retirement account. It's like, I need health insurance because I work a high risk job. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone who works something like this, that's physically demanding. And if you become injured, you're out, you're, you know, bread and butter are typically unionized jobs. Yeah. Archaeology is a weird exception to that. And there's a history for the reason why it's that way, but that's not an excuse. Yeah, I agree. And um, 
I, I've talked to several of the people in the Black Trial Collective, um, and you know, one of the panelists, Dave Schatz, about kind of their ideas around um, different organizational structures, um, and that's something I'm really interested to hear the kind of opinions and experiences and insights from others who are you know are more familiar with other organizational structures. Um, but, you know, the idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be a union, it could be a worker-owned co-op or something like that. Um, I think that there are more equitable forms of governance for, um, you know, for most companies that are out there doing um, commercial archaeology. For sure. I mean, one of the things I remember in my early days of grad school that I had under my belt as an idea um, was putting together some sort of temp service. Firms be in contact and you know, basically these would be technicians that would have experience. They would be able to say what their experience is, have resumes onboarded. People would be like, or companies could be like, I need people for a project in this area who has experience, it would be basically pre-filtered, they could contact people, but it would, you know, act just like a regular temp service and people would be more likely to stay employed um, because they don't necessarily have to be knocking on corporate doors to see if there's work out there. The, yeah. You know, I mean, I remember as a field technician, one of the, the biggest challenges I had was it was almost a second full-time job, like talking to other companies to look for my next, my next meal, basically. Yeah. Um, Shovel bumming is exhausting. It is. I mean, you can have one project that could go for a few months or a couple of years. And, you know, sometimes there's gaps in that. It's not always, you know, a straight, all the way through so you're looking for stuff in between trying to mm -hmm. keep in contact with companies that you have good rapport with um and it's just it is a lot of unpaid energy really yeah yeah trying to keep you know kind of a steady flow of work going um is really hard in an industry that's notorious for um nothing going according to plan you know <laughs> <laughs> like silly to think that we can plan as much as we think we try to yeah i mean we plan as much as we possibly can and then nothing goes according to plan like the plan changes it's yeah. but i mean if you think about it the nature of looking for things that we don't know you're yeah. going to have something that pops up <clears throat> and i mean there's obviously a degree to which you can plan um but with that there needs to be some sort of you know buffer in there to help with that process um, as far as, you know, bridging those gaps. Yeah. I feel like if um, a pool of laborers, a, a pool of workers, including management of, uh, you know, a commercial archeology span entity, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. if, if that pool, you know, had enough kind of, um, organization behind it to say this is the schedule that we have these are these are the workers that we have available these are their rates um and it just standardizes it like this is the schedule this is the rates um you can book us for this block of time and i think that would help a lot with the the insecurity of it and it would push kind of like this is me thinking very optimistically and maybe this is super naive of me, but um, like, I think it would push in a ripple effect, the kind of clients that uh, commercial archeologists have, you know, like federal land managers to um, secure funding more in advance to plan more in advance. And um, you know, to kind of reduce that like uncertainty on everything. For sure. Um, I think that's, that's a great way to look at it. Um, 
because a lot of it's just yeah exactly that it's being able to to keep people afloat and i think it'll take a larger oh. coordination of corporations and, um, or clients i guess i should say um, yeah. yeah it's and so much of it also because it's so our industry is so heavily tied to you know the funding apparatus of the federal government like what programs are funded what things um, different administrations prioritize in those funding uh, budgets can have huge impacts on uh, the industry uh, not even to mention you know the specific programs that uh, or <laughs> that are funded or defunded, I should say, um, or the way that what was it the streamlining that that Trump did? Streamlining. Streamlining. Yes. That, that like, AKA cutting corners. Cutting very large corners, and it's not <laughs> just archaeology. Man, the biologists got hit the hardest with that one. Yeah. Um, especially when it came to you know the uh, what's it called. Um, I saw the, a lot. Of, go ahead. There was that video that um, I still remember it. It was one of Trump's like first kind of big presidential moves where he took this stack of NEPA binders for, you know, some project he was looking at and he just started ripping pages out. Yeah. And I remembered in that moment, just feeling like my blood boil. Like I was so angry at how demeaning that was to, all of the work, all of the labor that that went into that went into that, and um, you know, just to see it wasted and devalued, and you know, just mocked, even yeah. as yeah. he was just ripping the pages out, and then seeing, you know, NEPA get streamlined after that, and you know, it turns out it wasn't a good thing at all. It was not at all because um, that affected everything, and I remember being on projects in 2019 that were like oh yeah the this is a NEPA project somehow the cultural got left in but the biologists didn't have to go out there and I'm like but it's a NEPA project um but it was like a certain streamlining like I don't remember the details of it but they didn't have to go out but we did and I was like that just seems wrong yeah uh, in a lot of ways because it was I mean it's a NEPA project meaning it is environmental like that is, and you know, so I think, I don't know, it's, it'll be interesting. And one of the things too, I'm curious about, and this is probably not covered in the panel. Um, so it would be interesting to learn outside of this is how um, biologists and other environmental workers, um, you know, shape their industry differently. Um, and some of that, from my perspective that I've seen referenced, and this is not based on my experience talking to biologists or other environmental workers, but other archeologists, as this is definitely a, you know, take with a grain of salt, um, is just the professionalism aspect of it. Oh, uh, yeah. And I know there's been a lot of push within archeology span to professionalize the technicians and to be less shovel bomb style. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback against that term as well. Um, and that's been good to see because uh, it was definitely interesting going from being a high school graduate working in sales and having a professionalism standard that was significantly higher than <laughs> a job that I needed a degree, a degree yeah. to it was really bizarre um, <laughs> shifting gears from from one level of education to the other was uh, yeah interesting yeah I agree and I I think we see like professionalism in commercial archaeology happen I don't know maybe I'm wrong about this now that I'm actually thinking about it like <laughs> my my initial thought was like Perhaps um, the professionalism we see in 
the other environmental fields is because a lot of those environmental um, companies are a division within a large architecture, engineering, and construction firm or like an AEC firm. Mm -hmm. So you've got these multinational AEC corporations that have environmental divisions within them. Um, and I could see, you know, like engineering is a, is a very professionalized field. There, there's a ton of standards about it, uh, uh, you know, uh, regarding that work. Um, and one of the common complaints I've seen from AEC um, project managers that do have to work with cultural resources is that there's a lack of professionalism. And so the whole process of cultural resources investigations seems opaque to them. Um, yeah. And that it frustrates them, you know, cause it, what it boils down to on their end is they don't know how to appropriately um, scope and price out what they then need to go get bids for from archaeologists. And so it, it tends to be very low. Um, and there's a lot of other factors that contribute to the low ball environment that a lot of um, cultural resources firms work in. Um, yeah. But I'm just curious about that. Like if professionalism could be a way to reduce that low ball environment and then therefore like increase wages and benefits I think part of that, I think that's a great idea. And I think part of that also comes down to like awareness as to mm. what archaeology is. In, yeah. I mean, this, it's not even the general public. I mean, this is getting to engineers and construction and other fields that hire us. Like our clientele should know what we do and understand the value that they are paying for, like what it is that they're, we do for them and why. Yeah. Um, and gaining an appreciation for that, even if they don't want it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, them, I hate this parallel, but it's like a logging company paying the biologist to find the spotted owl. You know, they're, they're not gonna be super happy about it, but you know, it's better than getting, you know, sued down the line yeah. uh, and having to deal with that. I mean, that is probably the best parallel I can think of for people who don't understand cultural resources. Yeah. I often describe it as like um, a building inspector. And so like when you go to buy a house, you hire the building inspector to find what the problems are that you're going to have to pay to fix later on. Yeah. And you hope that you just hire the building inspector and there's no problems. Um, but then sometimes the building inspector finds problems and then they cost you a lot more to fix yes. afterwards. And the worst kind of building inspectors are those that don't actually tell you everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you end up having to pay way more in repairs. Um, and that would be the equivalent of a shoddy archaeologist and yes. mobile, like, I'm going to look the other way sort of mentality um, that I think there is some... I don't think archaeologists typically desire that. I think there's there's probably, and I don't know of any specific examples, but I can imagine there are certainly clients out there that hope for that mentality in their cultural resources. Yeah. So, you know, that's the importance of them understanding why we need to be there to do that job. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, th I think that, I don't know, I've encountered some archaeologists that do have that kind of look the other way mentality. And I think in some cases, at least, it's kind of like um, they've been coerced into that mentality by clients or just like super narrow project budgets and yeah. just like kind of... Um, that's just like the path of least resistance for them. And, you know, that's not excusing that mentality at all, but it's just kind of like, I can, I can understand like maybe some of the conditions that make it happen, but um, we've got to get rid of those conditions. <laughs> sure. And I've seen that totally bite a firm in the ass too. Um, yeah. Especially when it comes to dealing with the tribes, 
Because mm-hmm. a lot of tribes know there's sites in certain areas. And if they're not all seen or picked up on survey, that can make some trouble. Um, so that's been something I've seen in this region happen at least once. Um, oh, yeah. Firms not submitting site forms when the tribe knows there's a site there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or just even uh, not defining it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything with, uh, and that's a part of the importance also of having someone with experience in a region on that team and not just having a bunch of people from out of the state working in the area. Yeah. Archaeology in the Pacific Northwest looks very different from archaeology in the Southwest um, is a really great example. Of- yeah. <laughs> it's it's a whole different ball game and even you know like i i did a lot of work in the southeast and there are some parallels to it given you know like shovel testing and stuff like that um but it's also just a completely different ball game yeah um, different culture different environment different way of working with agencies too um and also having in oregon having the tribes be way more active in projects um, is also a different ball game. Yeah, for sure. And it surprises people when they come in from out of the area. Yeah. Cause tribal consultation often doesn't get paid for uh, that's like unpaid labor. And so, you know, from the, the commercial archeology span standpoint, the frustration is like, okay, well, how do we, how do we cover that, that labor um, so that we're not just giving away free labor Um Budget for it. I don't have any good answers for it. That's in my day-to-day job. That's kind of the big question. It's like, how do I recoup some of the cost on this? Um, I don't know. There's there's ways to do it, but um, I don't think any of them are really elegant. That's fair. Yeah, that's that's something I think that should be. I mean, it's like any other in. And this is in my brain coming from if I were to like reel in um, or bring in my, you know, early experience of sales, like going out and looking for clients um, and consulting with the building inspector um, or let's say if a builder wants to build on a certain area, consulting with uh the neighborhood association, anything like that, um, other in- interested parties are going to be important, uh, no matter the type of project. And so that's where it's, it's something I think, I don't know if it's a, a culture thing that we don't budget for that, um, because it's not as common as it should be, um, or you know, how that should be integrated. Cause to me, that's just figuring out a place in a line item list of where to put it. You know, yeah. it's, it's hours that have to be spent. Yeah. How many hours depends on the tribe. <laughs> <laughs> and the project, but yeah, the tribe too. The agency. So, you know, it depends on the, the relationship between the tribe and the agency you're working with. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into that and that's the relationship building and um, you know, all of that, just like I think any other type of project management, you're, you're going to encounter, you know, uh, those types of relationship challenges or issues when you're looking at different parties, uh, whether that's, you know, the, person who's uh, buying a product to stock it in their store um, or, you know, that's probably a really horrible parallel, but I'm just thinking of other fields um, that have multiple like uh, consultations and brainstorming um, things that they have to do. Not everything's, you know, as straightforward, I guess. Yeah. I could see like, I have friends who work in like creative fields, um, like advertising and graphic design and stuff like that for various firms and, you know, like for Nike and stuff like that. Um, and they, 
they have kind of a line item, like you said, um, for, uh, like client consultation and it's very tightly scoped. It's like two or three review sessions. And at the end of the third review session, that's the product that you're going with. Um, and that's just part of how it goes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we could even take something like a checklist of everything that you have to do to prep a project in regular, you know, take an average um, archaeological project, create a checklist off of what those normally are, take a, you know, general budget and divide it up. I mean, it's obviously not that straightforward, but, yeah, um, you know, having an idea of how much time you might spend to that and budget for it. Um, and I think it's, it's up to the corporation uh, or to the people at the top of that ladder to determine, I guess, if that's, you know, acceptable or not. But I think it's, it is a very important part of what we do. I agree. And it's funny, um, to get that perspective after a while of working in CRM archeology, span uh, to kind of see that aspect of it. Um, you know, when I was, when I was a field tech, I had no idea about any of those aspects of, um, CRM archeology span and, you know, even working in the Southeast consultation isn't as big of a factor. Um, unfortunately, uh, I feel like it should be, but, um, yeah, it didn't really come up until I moved to Oregon, started working in Oregon. I was like, wow. Okay. Got to hit the ground running. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, an unfortunately unique situation. I'd like to see that it's say that it's not. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's bubbles across the country that are more involved. Um, but I haven't really worked across the country, so it's hard to say. But um, you know, I know that tribes exist all over the U.S. You have the First Nations in Canada and uh, the Alaskan villages um, up in Alaska. So yeah, that's you know, there's in throw in Hawaii and any of the other Native peoples of any of the U.S territories oh yeah you know plus puerto rico (laughs) there's 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 a whole lot there and everywhere because we're you know colonial country of both canada and the u.s yeah mexico and that i guess if you're talking north america um that's something that just needs to be considered absolutely well um yeah, so I, f- I feel like we we did a good job plugging the panel. Um, yeah. And we had a fun time talking about all the things that, that we want to see out of the panel. Um, so I'm excited to see the panel. Um, it is, again, going to be live on Thursday. Let me pull the flyer up. Um, Thursday, June 24th, 2021. Uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. Pacific time. Um, It's online. Check out the Black Trowel Collective online. Um, They're on various social media platforms, um, and there will be links in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, And then, again, afterwards, it'll be available for viewing, uh, I believe, on YouTube. I could be wrong about that. Um. Yeah. And then let me think what else. Oh, um, in not archaeology related things, uh, Petal Palooza is happening right now. Um, that is <laughs> listeners not familiar with Petal Palooza, uh, the city of Portland. Uh, prior to the pandemic, every June, there, there's like a, a crowdsourced calendar that people can add group rides to. And so, you know, in busier years, there would be dozens of group rides every day uh, that had a different theme and different destination. And, you know, some of them like uh, are like, I, I went on a, a ride 
that looked at a whole bunch of the murals in Northeast Portland. There's one that looks at all of the historic black um, uh, soul music venues in North Portland uh, in what's, what's left of the Albina neighborhood um, stuff like that. And then you've got like loud and lit. There was like a, um, a ride that was themed on the movie clueless where everybody dressed like characters from clueless and they listened to the soundtrack. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this year they're making up for lost time since it was canceled last year and it's, uh, all three months, uh, June, July, and August. Um, so it's just bike fun summer. Uh, that's going on. I wanted to join the, uh, Sprocket podcasts, uh, group ride that's going on today, but it's really hot and I just kind of don't feel like <laughs> <laughs> riding in that heat right now. That's um, very fair. I'm really hoping that some of the later ones are not as hot and are a bit mm-hmm. cooler and maybe we'll be able to put this one on a bike or in a trailer and tow them around a bit. Yeah. See, that'd be fun. Um, we were also brainstorming the idea of um, writing to you, and I saw a podcast at your place. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah, totally do that. That would nice. be amazing. There. There's baby Is Joel. It? Hey, hey. Who's that? <laughs> Hi, Joel. Hi, Joel. Hi. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's a little, little corners baking right now. It's like the ex- sun exposed side of the house in the late afternoon. Is oh, the, yeah. Like, <sighs> I need to put like some reflective film on it or something. Mm. But yeah, no, I, I am much envious of all the bike riding. <laughs> I do hope to get back on a bike sometime soon, but man, even just long walks. I went hiking at Mount Tabor the other day. I say hiking. It was like an attempt at trying to trail run again. And it was, you know, more of a hike than a trail run. Yeah. Um, It was lovely. I was sore for the next two days. (laughs) (laughs) That hill's no joke. Dude, serious. That was my, I uh, used to do that uh, two to three times a week before everything kind of came crashing down. Yeah. I got COVID. Before I got COVID, that was the thing last April. So, and now I got this guy. So, Look at him. Yeah. He's super cute. He is. And he's a happy camper. I love that. He's just, just looks like he's having a fun time chilling. Yep. Just very fascinated by anything that I touch regularly. So nice. Coffee cup and mouse are pretty much like. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, get out of that hot uh, corner, go get cool. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Cool. Sounds good. See you later. All righty. See you. Bye. Bye.